Podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. I'm an attorney and journalist here in the Seattle area. You can find me on Twitter at TurnerESQ. In addition to my day job, I'm a contributor to Sounder at Heart, where I cover the Seattle Sounders. I'm also a contributor at The Athletic, where I write about the business and law of soccer. And I run my own website, SoccerESQ.com, where I write about just about everything. The Women's World Cup is finally underway. And while many pundits have called this the deepest and possibly most entertaining Women's World Cup in history, there are still many issues bubbling just beneath the surface. Equal pay, investment in the women's game domestically, and prize money are just a few of them. I decided to call up two experts on soccer governance and Professor Stephen Bank from UCLA and journalist Bo Durr, formerly of USA Today, and publishers of several books on soccer. We discussed the prize money disparity, the U.S. women's national team lawsuit, and Hope Solo's crusade against the U.S. Soccer Federation. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now, I've got a couple of uh, great guests. Uh, professor Stephen Bank out in L.A., UCLA professor. And then I've got a journalist who needs no introduction in these matters, uh, Bo Durr. Uh, Bo, where are you at, uh, by the way? Uh, I'm at my home in Vienna, Virginia, uh, roughly 12 miles west of where the U.S. men's national team just laid an egg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably the less said about that, uh, the better. Uh, and then uh, Prof Bank, uh, go and say hello, everybody, and uh, give them your, uh, your, your credentials, as it were. Uh, so I am Steve Bank. I am a professor, as Nikki said, at UCLA School of Law. I... Uh, teach uh, international sports law, teach soccer law courses, probably the only soccer law courses in the country, uh, as well as teaching business and tax and corporate governance. And uh, somehow got ensnared in soccer and uh, (laughs) enough lawsuits to keep me busy for my career. Uh, Yeah, and to keep me writing about it for the foreseeable future, which is just uh, one amazing thing after the other. Uh, uh, Professor Big joined me on an earlier podcast uh, with Neil Morris, where we kind of went through all the lawsuits uh, that were currently plaguing U.S. <laughs> soccer, and for you know, more. yeah, and th- there are more, and we're going to talk about uh, a couple of them, uh, including uh, Hope Solo's lawsuit against the federation, and the corresponding uh, U.S. Women Women's National Team lawsuit uh, against the federation, both for equal pay. And this is obviously uh, somewhat serendipitous, as the Women's World Cup is upon us. Uh, and so I guess we'll start off with uh, just kind of, uh, you know, we'll start off on kind of a happier note and talk a little bit about the, the Women's World Cup and what we're hoping to see. Uh, I spoke with Meg Linehan for The Athletic for just kind of a preview piece, uh, but I wanted to kind of get uh, your guys' thoughts as well on the uh, just the Women's World Cup, uh, the women's national team, uh, what uh, we expect to see out of them. Uh, they're obviously the top-ranked team in the in the world, uh, going in uh, and expecting to do well. But they've got an unfortunate draw, assuming things play out uh, as they expect, where they'll meet France in the quarterfinals. Uh, and obviously, this this tournament is being played in France, so that's going to be a tough one. So uh, I figured yeah, I'd just throw it to you, Bo, and just kind of get your your general thoughts on on the uh, tournament at large. Well, it's more competitive than it's ever been, and you know, yes, it is unfortunate that they'll they're likely face France. But you know, let's say they finish second in the group. You know, let's say they draw against Sweden, and Sweden has better goal difference, and so they end up second. They're not going to get many easier teams uh, because you look at England, you look at um, Germany, of course. Uh, Japan uh, still has this beautiful flowing game, and some countries, you know, the reigning Euro champion is the Netherlands. Uh, which had 
had no real history in women's soccer uh, before then. Uh, Spain is starting to take it seriously now. So it's kind of uh, the kind of an effect of having European clubs uh, take the sport so much more seriously and having a Champions League that uh, is really interesting. So their players, um, their players have a ton of experience on a big stage. So you may have, by the time you get to the quarterfinals, you may have six or seven teams in that who you think, and I've forgotten Australia, uh, who I actually think will get to the final. Um, so you may have six or seven teams that, that get to the quarterfinals and say, you know what, we can win this. Yeah, Prop Bank, what do you think? Well, I, I'm no expert in the, uh, the on-field maneuvers, but but it does seem like the U.S. also has a fairly tough group, um, yeah. relatively speaking. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, it – it, um, so here's – for someone who's gone and watched UCLA play, women's soccer play, and I've taken my kids to see them play, and they built a nice new soccer-specific uh, stadium uh, on campus. And, and uh, what I'm noticing is is that the what used to be the big U.S. advantage, the women's college system, is increasingly populated by uh, players from other countries. And so, you, you know, the goalkeeper for the uh, UCLA team um, is now on this. I think made the Australian team. Uh, you know, there's a lot of real talent. So that's that's a credit to uh, uh, Title IX. That's a credit to the the college game, but it, it also suggests, you know, huge competition. What, what I'm really looking to see is, is more off the field. You know, what, what's the revenue going to look like? What is the attention? Uh, are we going to have an, an increase from 2015? Um, we aren't going to have the tur- artificial turf field, so that's good, but we're not going to have the equal prize money. So, you know, it's just, just trying to see, is the growth of the game real, or is it still limited to sort of a, a few select countries? Yeah, there's actually the FIFA Pro uh, uh, statement that came out uh, a couple of days ago, uh, which essentially said, we are for equal prize money, equal pay in the World Cup. The disparity in the 2015 prize pool is was was insane, I think, just by any general standard. Um, and they increased it to, I think, $30 million uh, this year for the prize. Is that right? Yeah, I think 30 is the yeah, and the, and it, but it's still uh, I think by a factor of ten nearly it uh, the men's uh, prize purse dwarfs the women women so I you know I'm I'm skeptical we're going to see much of a change uh, this year uh, but maybe going forward uh, Bo I don't know uh, do you think we'll see a, ma- a major change I think so I think that a lot of sponsors are are getting into the game now, uh, particularly in Europe. And, you know, look, FIFA is smack in the middle of of Europe. And so that, I think, will make a sea change in in a few places. I don't know how long it'll be before uh, things get evened out between uh, the Men's and Women's World Cup. Um, You know, it could be, ironically, if the Men's World Cup goes to 48 teams, like they say Uh, they want to. Yeah, I think that actually might make the men's world cup so diluted that it won't be as interesting to, I mean, it'd be interesting for, you know, a country of a million people that manages to get a team in there, but it won't be as interesting in general. Um, but I think the the trend line for women's sports is certainly going upward. Now will, it, um, will it catch up that gap uh, anytime soon. That's, that seems like a, 
a long way away if it ever happens. And of course, the thing is, having that disparity in prize money uh, puts federations like U.S. soccer in a tough spot because if they were to raise the women's uh, World Cup bonuses to the level of the men's, uh, you'd be talking about a fairly substantial uh, amount of money and a fairly substantial amount of money lost uh, on a women's World Cup effort uh, because you know the federation wouldn't get a ton of prize money uh, and then they'd be on the hook to pay the women much more. So I mean, if you talk about you know the, the easiest way to have uh, equal pay for um, for the U.S. women's and men's team would be to slash the men's <laughs> bonuses. I'm not sure how well yeah. that would go over. So. Yeah, right. And the men have made statements about you know being on board with equal pay, um, but again, that's all nice, well and good to say until the checks start getting smaller, um, and so we'll you know, we'll see what happens. And that kind of leads us into the uh, lawsuits that have been filed by the women's national team. Uh, for those who may not uh, have been following this um, as closely, this basically stems back to a uh, EEOC complaint that was filed by the women back in 2016. Uh, alleging unequal pay, that's that EEOC complaint, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, didn't go anywhere, and it took them about two and a half years to not get anywhere. Um, and then the, uh, once they got the denial letter, they decided to go ahead and file the lawsuit um, alleging all sorts of uh, disparities in pay, uh, conditions, uh, accommodations, per diems, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of that, uh, some of those things were resolved and as such are not in the women's national team complaint. Uh, they are in the complaint of Hope Solo, who filed her own separate uh, pay discrimination complaint uh, back in August of 2018. She did not wait to get the denial from the EEOC, uh, which is what you need to do before you're allowed to file typically. Um, you know, it's, it's, Go ahead. For a second. It wasn't a denial. Technically, it's not a denial. Yeah. It's a, they, they consider it a, you know, we, EEOC decides we're not um, going to pursue it, so we're giving you permission. Sure. To file. I only say that just because in case someone's thinking that there was some decision on the merits made. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, that's theory, a good point. Could, it's, it's a decision that we didn't have enough evidence or whatever, but it's not really a denial. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a good point and, uh, to, uh, to point out. So uh, they declined to uh, pursue the case any further um, is the bottom line, and that allowed uh, the women's national team to sue. Now, again, Hope Solo filed her own complaint before getting that uh, before getting that that document, and so that raises a, you know a couple of other issues, um, which may have been mooted by the fact that presumably she got the same letter that all of the other ladies got. Um, and so that complaint has been filed. And so, Prof, I wanted to get your just your kind of general thoughts on the uh, the women's national team complaint uh, that was initially filed, and it is obviously very similar to the Hope Solo uh, complaint as well. They you know they essentially mirror each other in the allegations um, they've made. Uh, and so, uh, what, what do you uh, generally think of the, uh, the complaint and and the issues that were raised? Uh, I, I can take a step first if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Uh, go so for it. My my sense is it's a different issue. The, the women's national 
in complaint in the solo lawsuit is a different issue than the FIFA equal prize question. Yeah. The equal prize is you can make this argument, really it's a non-legal policy argument that FIFA is a non-profit organization has a mission to spread soccer globally and it could um, uh, legitimately uh, take the view that the pr it's not really prize money, it's more we've made money, how do we distribute this to, you know, to pursue our mission and there's no sort of earning the money. It's not compensation or anything like that. So for FIFA, how they how they allocate the money is is like saying that you know how does the American government allocate tax money? It's not about you know who earned it or something like yeah. that. It's, it's it's policy issues. But with with um, the problem for the women's national team is they've got a union. The players uh, who compete and who are part of the pool for the women's national team have a union. So do the men. The men who are in the national team um, set up have a, a union. They have collective bargaining agreements. They have bargained for very different uh, types of compensation. The women have a guaranteed salary if you're in the pool, whether or not you actually make the team. And then there's bonuses on top of that for uh, competing in various events or for friendlies or for winning or things like that. Whereas the men, it's all pay to play. If you don't make it, you don't get anything. So uh, those that really complicates any kind of an equal pay lawsuit because if you just look at the bonus amounts without looking at the fact that the base salaries, regardless of even the amount of the base salaries, but just the, the risk-reward kind of strategy, they're just different. It's hard, They're apples and oranges. Yeah, and the uh, the the CBA is 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 definitely going to be a complicating factor in their lawsuit because, uh, as uh, Professor Mike said, they they have bargained for a number of these issues, and unless yeah, and I don't even know if 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 the federation has had withheld information, that might be one thing, uh, or was some otherwise dishonest in their dealings in the negotiations. Yeah, that might be one thing, but beyond that, it's 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 it will probably be a little tough for them to explain why they decided to go along with the uh, with the agreement, um, and then now they're filing this lawsuit, and that's the sense. When I've talked to the federation about this, you can sense that's part of their frustration with this whole lawsuit. It, you know, they talked about how they uh, negotiated this agreement, how they were on good terms with the uh, with the women's national team. And then they were essentially blindsided by this lawsuit. Although, on the other side, they may not, shouldn't have been blindsided by this lawsuit because they knew that this EEOC uh, complaint was out there. Uh, and so it, it's tough. To, it's tough for me to understand why they would have necessarily been shocked that this was this was going to be filed. Well, so the thing, um, the funny thing about it is, you know, the headlines on this are always equal pay. Equal pay, and uh, to to some extent, that's the line that they say. You know, um, I talked with Rich Nichols, the lawyer that Hope Solo brought in. Um, you know, this was a while ago, I guess, before the Olympics, and when it looked like the U.S. Uh, was looking for the right to strike before the Olympics, which yes. of course they did not. Right, which of course they did not win. And I said, "Well, Mr. Nichols, what sort of um, what sort of salary structure would you be looking for?" And he says, "Equal pay." for equal play and I would say but it's different and that the, the interesting thing here and you know US soccer is going to come in you know probably in their next filing and say look the women have asked for something 
different. They have asked for their salaries. And, you know, most people don't realize that. It's why the women always win the PR battle because yeah. you know, have this come out, oh, they're suing for equal pay. And then all the pundits come out and say, well, yeah, they should have equal pay and they should get more because they win. And they don't realize they do get more because they win. You know, you look at the last fiscal year and the top five paid uh, athletes in U.S. soccer were all women. That's sure to be the case again when we see the next 990. And they don't realize that. And they don't realize that I had a conversation with a fairly prominent women's sports advocate recently. And we were talking about that. And she said, well, how is the women's salary compared to the men? And I said, the men aren't on salary. And she was flabbergasted. She didn't realize that. And so I did a thought experiment recently to try to figure out how to, let's say, let's say the women's salary would be equal to what a man would get if he plays 20 games. And no U.S. man has played 20 games, I think, since Landon Donovan many years ago. Um, so, again, they, they win all of these little PR battles because you know people don't know the details. When you get into the details, you see how tricky it really is. And when you say equal pay, what does that mean? What I'm curious about is, has any women's national team player said, yes, we want the same structure as the men? And say, and that would mean foregoing salaries. Um, and for someone on the team who's already fairly wealthy, that might work. For someone who is you know, the 18th player on the team, and might not get called into the Nets camp uh, because they're, you know, they're not required to. They're not, they're not on salary. So, um, you know, because the salaries have affected team selection at some point because it's actually there's incentive to not bring in people from the outside. So if you're 18th on the team and uh, you might not make it, then it really hurts you if you go away from the salary. So I wonder, and you know, U.S. U.S. women always play things close to the vest. If they ever had that disagreement, uh, they never said it publicly. Yeah. But, you know, Hope Solo goes on and makes a Eurosport ad with uh, Eric Cantona and uh, and says, well, we asked for equal, and then they gave us equitable. What does that mean? And then I would, I would respond, what does equal mean? And she's never going to tell me. You know, the interesting thing about that is Becky Sauerbrunn had an um, interview with Grant Wall uh, in Sports Illustrated where she effectively said, well, we're not really looking for equal. We're looking for you know something equitable or something like that. I mean, she basically acknowledged that it's not identical is what we're looking for. We're looking for something that's equal. But it really, even if you could equalize the money, so count up what Landon Donovan earned, you're know, playing 20 uh, friendlies or whatever it is, 20 games, uh, it would not be equal because the difference between guaranteed and risk is huge in your planning. And I mean, that people, people choose jobs that are, um, as journalists can probably understand, people choose a lower paying but guaranteed salary over, you know, the, you know, going freelancing and hoping that they're going to get maybe bigger pay overall. It's, there's all sorts of reasons why those two things are not comparable. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, one of the other issues that was uh, raised in the, uh, in the lawsuit, uh, that I wanted to touch on was obviously the success of the women versus the men. Um, which is not, you know, I'm not sure if that's a legally relevant point, but it's certainly a PR relevant point. Um, and in the lawsuit, they talked about uh, how due to the women's success in the 2015 World Cup, they brought in 
nearly $18 million or turn the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation's uh, revenue projections from a deficit to uh, a surplus. And obviously that makes for a very good talking point. And, but, you know, is, is the revenue that the women bring in versus the men um, a relevant point in a lawsuit uh, perspective? Or is it, is it simply a, a nice point that they can raise in the public? You know, in a lot of ways, I think what the, the women are, are doing, what both sides are doing, and certainly Hope Solo is doing, is fight, fighting a PR battle first and a, a lawsuit second. In, in a, in, so in some sense, and U.S. Soccer's playing along with it by arguing the revenue point. Yeah. I, I don't quite get how the revenue point fits in unless there are revenue-based um, bonuses being paid to you know one side not the other you know other than that it's hard to reconcile the, the when you when you file a lawsuit for equal pay against a company uh, it, it's not relevant that the company is earning a lot of money from one division over another and should be paying it the company it's a business judgment the company can decide how it allocates its you know expenditures it's but it's it's a comparison between two genders is what you're you're doing as to what's yeah. being paid so don't see exactly how revenue fits in other than as a PR but you know it, it, it's certainly possible um, that you can make some kind of argument about uh, either a tax or or um, nonprofit argument about you know the amount of revenue and surplus and yeah and I would also say uh, you know again as a, as we talked about a little earlier the fact that they uh, the revenue projections or revenue brought in um, as, as far as a nonprofit is concerned, you know, is, is sort of beside the point because the the mission of U.S. soccer and FIFA generally is to essentially grow the sport. And so there's the argument that it doesn't really matter uh, that the men, you know, ha have the potential to bring in a lot more money um, if they were to win the World Cup. Uh, that's, you know, again, beside the point because, again, the mission should be to grow the sport. And certainly women are deserving of that investment um, as much as the men. Yeah, and, and the women pay, the women and men both pay, both subsidize youth in uh, other areas, you know, to the extent that there's extra money being made. You know, this whole, the whole talk in the solo lawsuit about the, the um, surplus, my understanding is that surplus is primarily from uh, the Copa America. Copa America, correct. And, and so what you're talking about is, is how do we... Everybody's talking about how we spend that money, including Solo and her complaint. The USOC is saying that money could be spent on youth. So she's already talking about disengaging, disconnecting the, where the revenue source came from and where it's and where it's spent. Yeah, and you know the Copa scenario brings up one of the problems with pegging things to revenue, which is accountants can be pretty creative. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they and can. So, yeah, and so you could, and there are some things that. You could easily figure in. You could say, "Well, our rev our uh, revenue, our net revenue was you know eighteen million. The U.S. Soccer can say, "Okay, but we sunk X million dollars into the NWSL, which was meant to develop uh, women's players." And then with the Copa Centenario, you can get into the question of, "Okay, let's try to quantify how much of that revenue is due to the U.S. men's participation in it." You probably couldn't say, you know, $150 million worth, but could you say $40 million? And then you're talking about more money, you know, more revenue than U.S. women could ever hope to bring in. And so 
that's one of the problems with paying its revenue. The other is there is no guarantee whatsoever that the women are going to continue to have better results than the men. It's perfectly possible. I mean, the U.S. men reached the quarterfinals of the 2002 World Cup. The U.S. women got knocked out in the quarterfinals of the 2016 Olympics. And they have, as we talked about already, a pretty good chance of going out in the quarterfinals this time around. And so if you peg everything to revenue, um, I think the women could end up coming out much worse. Yeah, if you're, if you're the lawyer negotiating for the women um, and for the men, frankly, I'm not sure that you want to peg it to revenue. So if, if this wasn't a litigation council, but this was transaction, you know, employee uh, the Labor Council, I'm not sure they're making this argument, uh, which is why they're trying to walk, the women are trying to walk a tightrope between this is unequal and do you want to switch? And um, the, and I don't think the men have made the revenue argument either. So it's, it's really a tough, uh, it, it's sort of a red herring out there. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, as we're talking about the 2016 COPA, I've done some digging into the 990s, uh, which are the tax filings, and the revenues that... Uh, U.S. Soccer claimed were around 190 million for that tournament, but their expenses were around 182 uh, claimed <laughs> expenses. So there, there you go. You've got a, a, essentially a, a quote unquote eight million dollar profit uh, that uh, that the federation uh, made based on the expenses that they claimed. And you know, a lot of those expenses are you know uh, you know equipment, housing, taxes. Uh, there's something called uh, management expenses, which is not really explained, but they dumped around 46 million into those expenses. Just that's probably, no, no idea what those are. That's pro that could be how much you allocate overhead expenses, so the costs of all the executives who work on it. And that's yeah. one of the ways when, um, so I also teach business and tax, and uh, that's one of the ways in which all the major tax schemes work is, is you shift profits by shifting expenses you know, around. And it's, as Bo said, it's very easy to do if it's not heavily regulated and um, it's done in financial fair play as well in Europe. Um, there's, there's all sorts of ways you can cook the profit, what's profits and what's not. Yeah, and even on youth investment, you can really play with numbers a bit. And for a while, there was a, a gender equity complaint that they had started, U.S. Soccer had started a development academy for boys and didn't have one for girls. Well, then they went out and started one for girls, and frankly, it was a terrible idea because you had this existing league, the ECNL, that was doing what the development academy on the boys' side was already doing, which was to gather 80 clubs or so together. It was actually more competitive than the development academy, and the ECNL was different because it let uh, players continue to play in high school, and as they're finding out, for whatever reason, that's, fairly, that's more important to girls than it is to boys. So it's a case in which, it on paper, that looks equal. But the reality is now you've really subdivided girls' soccer uh, into these two competing organizations, and you can have teams that are 15 miles apart that are both great that don't play each other, and they fly six hours to play somebody. So, again, there are just so many ways. It's, in some cases, we say it's creative accounting. In some cases, it's just a legitimate question of how you quantify things. Yeah, and so uh, before we get too far in the weeds <laughs> on the uh, on the tax issues <laughs> and stuff, there. yeah, yeah, we're already there. So let's uh, let's move it to Hope Solo, who uh, who filed, as we said, filed her own lawsuit uh, alleging 
equal, uh, unequal pay and and uh, discrimination generally. And you know, just you know, obviously, Hope Solo has had a complicated history with uh, the Federation, uh, which culminated with her termination um, in 2016 after her. Uh, outburst uh, regarding the uh, game versus Sweden, which they lost, which sent them out of the Olympics. Uh, she was uh, terminated uh, from her contract, suspended for six months, and then she came back with a vengeance, I would say, uh, running for uh, federa Federation president um, in 2018. She, I think she announced in 2017, December, and then the election was obviously 2018. Um, in the midst of that, she also filed a complaint with the uh, uh, U.S. Olympic Committee uh, alleging basically that the Federation was failing in every single way possible, with the exception of their uh, relationship with MLS. Um, and that complaint was dismissed, but we've had some news recently. Uh, she appealed that dismissal to an arbitration panel, um, and she won. Uh, she at least won the right to have her grievance uh, heard by the USOC. But uh, circling back, uh, Professor, I just wanted to get your kind of general thoughts on her initial complaint to the USOC. I mean, it was basically every grievance under the sun that basically anyone who is not uh, affiliated with uh, the Federation or has some gripes with the Federation, uh, everything that anybody who has had a complaint with the Federation, it was listed in that in that grievance. Yeah, the, so here's what's obscured by her... Um, procedural victory um, in um, getting the um, motion to dismiss essentially reversed. What's lost in that is, is the original complaint is, is um, quite context-based. It was filed right before the election um, in 2018. It is focused on um, there's a huge amount of discussion of Kathy Carter yes. as being the and Gulati Kennedy, and she didn't win. Um, uh, which makes it, you know, if you go back and read it and you're a member of whatever, the Rowing Federation, and you're sitting there looking at this and say, okay, this is awful. This Kathy Carter, wow, she's this huge conflict. Um, they're just putting their support behind her and she's got like all the votes already. And then you look it up. Did she win? No. I mean, did she <laughs> no. make it to the second round? Did she, you know, and so that's just really like, it's, it's a, it was a, a political document filed before the election, um, and it reads that way in some respects, rather than entirely a, a, a legal complaint. Yeah. And so that that's isn't to say that Solo doesn't have legitimate issues within the complaint, but they are going to get, um, to some extent, minimized because the document itself reads like this election era, you know, campaign. It's documents. very partisan. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there, so, so that, that seems to be the, the first thing that cries out is like, wait a minute, but Carter didn't win. So is, you know, you're using that as proof that there's this huge MLS, some, you know, dominance and yet she didn't win. And then the, um, but there are some things I, I think that are interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, she can claim there's not enough transparency and I think there's Probably uh, many people would agree that, that transparency could be improved. Um, there are things like an independent ethics committee is required under the U.S. Soccer Federation bylaws, and they don't have one. That's an independent ethics committee. You could argue that that they should do it. I could see uh, USOC coming up with some kind of a decision that 
grants a few of these things or at least gives credence to it. They've already, at least the arbitration panel has given credence to the notion that the grievance procedure isn't um, what they would like. Yeah. So you can see a few things changing and not really the kinds of things that um, are fundamental is what you're, what you're calling for in your complaint. It's an odd messenger uh, for, for what's, for perhaps some legitimate complaints because um, here you have someone against whom the Federation could have a lot of complaints. You know, the Federation can say, well, you did this, you did this, you did this. Uh, that's undercut somewhat by the fact that they kept giving her second and third and fourth and fifth chances as long as she was the best goalkeeper in the world. And then they stopped doing it when she wasn't obviously uh, the best goalkeeper in the world. One thing I'm interested in seeing, I guess it wouldn't affect the USOC uh, path that she's taken, but the legal path is, are the would the women's team be receptive to essentially joining up with Hope Solo? And that's a difficult question because you know, we haven't heard much about how the team felt when Solo was dismissed. It wasn't like everyone ran to Instagram and said, oh, what a travesty this is. And that um, perhaps that was just being cautious or perhaps they didn't mind seeing her go. And, you know, she had brought in a lawyer, Rich Nichols, who is still representing her. Uh, Nichols was the person who kept repeating the equal pay for equal play mantra as if to imply that the U.S. women really did want the same contract as the men, which we, we just discussed. They really didn't. And so would Nick and, you know, Solo was gone. And then soon after that, Nichols was gone. And then they signed the CBA. So would they want to join up with the Solo Nichols team again? That's really hard to say. So, uh, so what I can say on that, um, just and this is after I, uh, as I said, I, I discussed uh, this with uh, Megan Linehan uh, over at the Athletic, and I asked her that question: uh, What did what do the women think of Solo? Uh, and she said essentially that they are maintaining radio silence on that officially, <laughs> uh, but behind the scenes, it sounds like they are happy to let Solo do her own thing. Um, because I think they enjoy her uh, lobbying these uh, rhetorical and legal bombs at the Federation. Um, so it sounds like it, it, it serves their purpose in one respect, and uh, but to the extent that they would actually join up with her, well, obviously we've got, uh, as, par you know, as part of these dueling complaints, uh, the women's national team is trying to get uh, make Solo's case part of theirs, essentially, because they essentially, uh, as we talked about a little bit, at least uh, the underlying facts are essentially the same, if not uh, some of the, uh, the specific points. Um, and so, you know, we can certainly talk about what, you know, what are the merits of those cases being joined? Uh, Professor Bank, what do you think? Do you think that's ultimately going to happen? And uh, what what do you think? Well, I, so, you know, I, I cringed a little bit at the way you worded it, which is, I mean, a perfectly acceptable way. It's just I'm not sure that's the way they think about it. it this is a battle about who gets to lead the case yeah. in some respects. Uh, and it's not, I think neither side is is saying we would like them to join us because um, mm. they could have beforehand. Yeah. It's more that we think we're going to be forced to join because it is um, the courts do not like to decide um cases with similar facts, based on the same underlying facts in two different uh, um, courts in the federal system. So Yeah, it can uh, lead think, to conflicting decisions. 
Exactly. And so they don't they don't want to end up that way. And so I think the parties know that they're going to be forced to, to do it somewhere. Neither of them really want to do it in Chicago, which is where um, U.S. Soccer Federation's home turf and where they want to do it. Uh, so it's interesting that the, the women filed in Los Angeles and, and Hope Solo filed up in Northern California. Uh, I think the, the women would like to lead this case. And, and uh, they, so in that sense, that's why they filed in a different place. But, um, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, I don't think it will be left as two different cases. I think that the, the, there's a panel on um, judicial panel, multi-district litigation that decides these questions and they're, considering it now I don't um, I don't know exactly where their proceeding is uh, but my guess is that they will decide where to put it, it it's there there's arguments on both sides solo filed first but um, the women have um, uh, more of them and um, they maybe have a better claim to Los Angeles so we'll see yeah the uh, the other thing and uh, sounds like Bo you want to get in so from what I saw I don't think the Federation at this point is trying to get the case to Chicago that's my sense um, may, probably because they think they're they're likely to lose on that on that right. front, um, and so I think they're uh, they filed some documents. Uh, I think as, essentially arguing that the case should be held in, heard in San Francisco, arguing that Solo's case was there you know filed first. She was first to the courthouse. I'm not sure if there's some underlying um, you know argument they think they'll be able to make uh, based on that. Um, I'm sure there's a reason why they uh, would prefer San Francisco as opposed to Los Angeles. I don't know that at this point, but it, I don't think Chicago's in play at this point, essentially. But we'll see what the uh, multi-panel, uh, uh, the panel has to say about that. Yeah, and so the other issue here, and, and I'm, you know, being the non-lawyer, and here I'm looking at the personalities as much as anything else, is that you know the, I think Cordero, Carlos Cordero, U.S. Soccer President, uh, would love to settle this. Um, you know, he doesn't want to give away the farm in settling it, but he certainly would. I think that the the current U.S. team would probably be more inclined to accept the settlement offer than Solo would. Yes. Um, yeah. Part of it is that you know this affects the U.S. national team's future, um, and you know some of them are a little older and moving on uh, down the road, um, but it is mostly their future at stake and. They would love to, you know, they'd love to get this all out of the way. You know, again, they're not going to just cave at the first settlement offer. But, you know, Solo, on the other hand, I think would ride this out to the Supreme Court if she possibly could. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that is a legal view. That's not a, a lawyer would say that. <laughs> the same thing is they always want to settle. I mean, and a lot of these posturing and these in, intermediate victories are all about leverage for purposes of settlement. The problem U.S. soccer is facing for Solo, and for uh, Rocco Camiso, uh, for the NASL. I was just about we'll to see, raise the NASL. You know, it, which may be the one and the same, because, you know, the rumors are that he's financing some of her lawsuit, is, and this USOC complaint, which is also apparently being financed by him, these these are slash and burn um, uh, type uh, filings. There is, there's not much in the USOC complaint that, um, solo could win that would really get much for her or for anybody really. Yeah. Um, unless you thought that USOC was going to strip U.S. soccer of, um, of its governing body status. And if, if you don't do that, then there's not much that they're going to get out of this. Um, so that's a problem. It, it, lawyers can deal with with parties who, who have a money amount because you can settle that. 
Mm-hmm. When they have a personal um, oh. aspect to it, it's difficult. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, uh, Rocco Camiso and, and Hope Soul are in some ways two peas in a pod. Um, you know, you know, to say nothing of the uh, the financial relationship they may or may not have, but you know, the NASL case essentially at this point mirrors uh, solos in that the NASL is unlikely to come back in their former iteration if they win their lawsuit, um, and so at this point it seems more as much of an ideological battle as a financial one, or as one where. Uh, specific uh, performance can be uh, you know, attained in that they come back and are a league that is a division one league that is, you know, instituting pro rel and is challenging MLS. And, you know, again, same thing here. I'm not sure what solo is ultimately going to get out of this. Cause she's not going to be a member of the national team going forward. Yeah. It, it's, it's motivated by vengeance as much as anything else for solo and Camiso at this point. Cause yeah, like, you're right. The, I mean, the NASL as an entity, I feel like they exist pretty much just to continue the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah they do. Although um, maybe it'll be diverted with uh, purchasing Fiorentino. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, kind of came out of nowhere, and uh, we'll see if he, uh, we'll see what his uh, how his intentions are uh, going forward. So, I guess uh, just to briefly wrap up, I did want to chat uh, about. The AAA uh, ruling specifically, um, because again, it did essentially reverse uh, the USOC's uh, decision to dismiss the case. Uh, USOC essentially found that Solo had not exhausted her administrative remedies uh, within uh, within uh, U.S. Soccer, and that U.S. Soccer, you know, farming out their grievance process to an independent panel was, you know, not an unreasonable thing to do. Um, so the AAA reverse and basically said, you, "Well, no, your 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 grievance process is flawed, or you don't have one, or it's in violation of uh, USOC bylaws and the Ted Stevens Act." And so when I talked to the federation about this, uh, they were, you know, a bit uh, bemused, I think, by the by the ruling. Uh, number one, because the USOC said that they were in compliance with uh, with their procedures, and number two, that farming it to an independent arbitration panel was in the best interests of everyone because, as we talked about, it eliminates conflicts of interest and, you know, uh, potential biases. So, I'm, I'm you know, I, I think I take their point because what are they going to do when this comes back before the USOC? Uh, is the USOC going to force them to rewrite their bylaws? And does the USOC need to rewrite their bylaws because they're the ones that approved uh, what what the federation was doing in the first place. So, um, so an interesting point here. People talk about the AAA. It's the, it's the American Arbitration Association. They are all they are is like um, they're like the South Bay Referee Association. They just assign you know people who go and arbitrate you know yeah. hear the arbitration. So um, it's not as if an organization said, you know what, you guys are just um, doing this wrong. It's three arbitrators. Yeah. Uh, um, you could redo this case, and three arbitrators would conclude differently. And it's not binding. The precedent from one is not binding. The case of one case isn't binding on the others. So it's possible, unless the USOC was convinced, or, or were convinced that they're going to lose a lot of future cases, that the USOC says, no, you don't have to change anything about the grievance process. We actually think that's pretty good. I, I do think there's an argument under the Stevens Act that, um, that this is... Um, this is compliant, uh, 
because you have to interpret governing committee to require athletes. Is this a governing committee? Not clear. But put that aside. The way arbitration works is you agree we're going to do binding arbitration. You get the finality of it. You get the certainty of it. Uh, but it doesn't give much guidance for the future. So, yeah. um, you know, maybe they'll change it. Um, it's really no sweat for U.S. soccer to change it. You just appoint two U.S. soccer people and, and one athlete. And one athlete, yeah. And then you have a hearing. But right now what's going to happen is is because it doesn't exist, it goes back to USOC, who's going to have on the hearing panel three people with no connection to soccer, uh, and two, one, two of them, two people and then an athlete. And uh, they're going to hear the substantive complaints. Um, uh, but I, I'm... And the grievance process wasn't actually part of one of the complaints, although I suppose they could take notice of that. But other than that, it really doesn't require much to happen for the um, U.S. soccer. It's sort of a um, – I get both sides' complaints about it, but it, it's really – that's the thing about arbitration. It's, it's just a way to solve a dispute quickly, but not with a lot of um, guidance. And if you're an Olympic sports geek like me, then you're wondering, even though it's not a – a legal precedent, you're wondering if every other federation right now is going, uh-oh, we're going to have to revise things um, so that, you know, if we have a dispute between two uh, two regional organizations or if we have, uh, you know, a coach that's accused of sexual abuse, how do we have to handle that internally? And, of course, in a lot of cases, you know, they're, you know, the trend is, again, to farm things out to have independent bodies, you know, USADA and the Center for Safe Sport. Yeah, I mean, I, there is a good reason to to farm those out, uh, but you know, I, I agree with I think with Professor Bank that uh, it, it's possible that the USOC just uh, takes a look at this uh, this ruling from the arbitration panel and says, well, okay, that's great. Uh, we still don't agree, and we think the poli you know USO uh, we think the federation's policy uh, bylaws are fine, and we certainly think ours are. So uh, I'm not sure what you're going to do at that point. I mean, obviously Solo will probably file uh, yet another lawsuit, and we'll have something else to talk about uh, going forward. The other question is whether Solo would actually get support from an athlete, um, because you know when she ran for president, the athletes' council didn't really even seem to take her seriously. So that. There's, I think if she thinks that having an athlete on the panel is going to be uh, to her benefit, I'm not sure that it is. Yeah, I, I think this was all, all um, lawyers. That is, the lawyer sat down and said, how can we contest the ruling uh, that forced us to go back and get um, and, and go back through the grievance process? And they came up with a reason, you know, because they up with several reasons. Uh, so I, I don't think this was like anybody you know, making a policy decision or substantive decision about the benefit of athlete representation. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Uh, and so I want to thank uh, Professor Bank and Boder for joining me on this uh, edition of the podcast. Uh, why don't you guys tell everyone where they can find you, uh, Bo? Uh, best place is probably on, on Twitter, uh, Dewar Sport, D-U-R-E sports play on on Eurosport because uh, my, my writing and web presences right now are so scattered but everything does funnel back uh, to that even though I'm, I'm trying to be less argumentative on there than I used to be <laughs> and you can uh, find me also on Twitter ProfBank uh, P-R-O-F-B-A-N-K uh, you can also find me at UCLA School of Law and, and if you want to read some of my arguments in Really, really long form. I have a 80-page <laughs> uh, article just came out on reforming FIFA. 
uh, reforming whistleblower statutes and uh, continually writing about some of these issues. So, Yeah, absolutely. And thanks a lot uh, to both of them for uh, joining, both of you guys for joining me. And we'll do this soon because there will be more developments in the legal uh, sphere uh, coming down the pike. We've got so many lawsuits, it's, it's tough to keep track of them all. So uh, Bo and Steve, uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you.